Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, we usually have lots of guests who've written a book or who have a speaking career, and I love all of those perspectives. They're great fun. But I really also like to turn to someone who has been in the trenches and hear this perspective from people who have done the job as opposed to written about the job. Sometimes those overlap, but not always. So today, that's what we're going to do. And in particular, I want to talk about two things that I think are highly relevant. One is about this whole thing of managing multicultural teams and working across different cultures. And the second one is this notion of managing when things are uncertain kind of like we're all living with at the current moment. So my guest today, Zoe Layden, is a risk management expert, and she's got 29 experience, years of experience in the international insurance market. She's currently managing director of Clavo Consulting, working with an array of reinsurance entities, mostly in the aerospace industry. And Zoe believes that a holistic approach to risk begins with looking at the systemic risk that are facing a business and then working across disciplines, one part of which is involved in selling the insurance. Now, Zoe's been fascinated by the global interfaces and she's forged a business that's around helping other people navigate the complexities that these interlinked aspects of our global infrastructure provide. Prior to having this business, which is our own business, she was a broker and relationship person for and chief underwriting officer in the airline director for Allianz Global Corporate and Specialty in four hubs, London, Paris, Munich, and New York. And Zoe has spent 16 years at Willis Limited in London and New York, where she held a number of key roles. So Zoe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wanda. It's my pleasure. That's great fun. I'm looking forward to this one. Um, and I just gave a little bit about your history and the reinsurance and aerospace industry, but I want to start talking a little bit more about you personally. So from a personal side, particularly from the leadership side, what do you think it is about you that's made you effective as a leader? Kind of like what's your key secret that makes you successful? <laughs> um, I think with many, many of us, we grow into it. Um, so... It, it being a state of being right now, I'd say that I started out already, personality-wise, as a rather an extrovert. So <clears throat> that didn't hurt positioning myself. And then as I grew into my various leadership roles, I was comfortable asking about what I didn't know. I was comfortable with the expertise that I had gained along the way. And I could then realize where I didn't know enough and I would seek other experts or professional opinion of my colleagues and or team. Predominantly, I would say that, that that's the big area and, and listening, listening a lot. Yeah. Um, that's, okay, that's an interesting and I um, asked someone else in your industry a number of years ago, someone you probably know, but we'll leave the names out of it. 
what it was that made him particularly effective. And he said, you know, the thing I think I've always ever done is find talent, spot talent, and get out of its way. And it always struck me that that was an interesting perspective on his unique contribution. But I like yours, this notion that you're comfortable with what you know, so you bring your expertise, that's good, but then comfortable asking about what you don't know, and then listening, of course, to the answer. So I have to try an experiment on you. I was listening to a podcast between Adam Grant and Esther Perez. And if you haven't listened to that, the series is called How We Work. Sorry about asking, advertising somebody else's podcast. But this was a really good one. And Esther was saying that she was asking, you know, do you have a mindset of sort of, you know, you're part of a community. There's a whole collection. You're never alone. There's always somebody there to help you. Or do you have a mindset that says, I'm in it myself and I have to be out for myself? And she says, these show up predominantly in childhood. So do you recognize either one of those as being primarily for you? Well, I would initially say from an early age, I thought I must take care of things myself. Like I'm very much Mm a resilient self-reliant. But I think I learned it along the way. So I was able to synthesize it. Um, I think the other thing about leadership in teams is when you have, I was asked to create a team once, and it was a research team and um, in an insurance broker. And I realized that if you just had people with analytical skills and, and attitudes, we wouldn't be able to offer the whole plethora of services that I wanted this research team to give. So... The way I put it to my management team that I was, you know, how I was going to hire this team was we needed interdisciplinary group of people. We need somebody who's very analytical. We need somebody who can interact, who has a real verbal ability to, to speak with the others and, and to, to articulate um, and, you know, design. And so, so we had a really interesting mix, and it, it worked very well. Yeah. Yeah, so we see that a lot. Anyway, it's precluding what I want to ask you later, but what um, Perez says, by the way, is that the predominant mode for people who are raised in the U.S. is the self-reliant one, and that the predominant mode for people who are raised in Europe is more the community perspective. Obviously, it's not perfect, and there's always blends of that one. But I like this notion of getting people on the team with really different perspectives. Okay, so... If that's what makes you successful, I want to talk about what's been hard for you. So what's been the hardest thing that you've had to do um, or learn to do as a leader? Ooh. Um, <clears throat> I think sometimes um, you've found, you think you've hit a brick wall um, about a subject or a topic, and you, it's hard to make a decision about what to do next. And as a leader, people are looking to you to make a decision. And what I came to the conclusion was that with as much information I could muster, using the resources I described, to make a valid decision based on my understanding, but to make one. And then if you... If the decision comes out to be wrong, then you'll be humbled by it, and you'll work, and you'll you'll move over, and... uh, take another route. But I think that as a leader, people look to you to make decisions. And 
And you have to have the confidence and ability to do that. And I've been in organizations where people really didn't want to be the one to be make that perhaps wrong decision. Um, the um, the other aspect of, of decision making, is, yeah, is the fallibility that right. you have to be comfortable with. So, how do you get? comfortable with being fallible or with making a mistake? Uh, um, Again, I think it's being, from my perspective, it was feeling that I made a decision with, with enough information to, to to make it validly. I had a, I had a boss once um, when I moved over to the insurance company that taught me something really interesting and it wasn't a direct teaching. It wasn't um, explicit. But when I was broking, decisions had to be made quickly and without appearing, no thought, just quick, reactive. Um, that's what I thought as a younger person. Um, obviously, you know, I think as I grew, I could see that the people making the decisions probably had enough experience to make them quickly. But when I moved over to the insurance um, side of the business, that's the risk-taking side. Those are the people that pay the bills in the event of a claim. I noticed that this boss I had that had, had brought me over to the company, he would not make a decision right away. In fact, he'd go back with questions. And he'd say, oh, uh, all right, tell me this, tell me that. And he would pause. And I had never seen someone be so slow to make a decision <laughs> or to request time and then and come back later. And that was a brilliant methodology because he made good decisions and he made informed ones based on questioning. And that was a big one for me. So seeing it modeled that you can slow down enough to ask questions and that the important thing is knowing the questions to ask or asking the really good questions and then know you've got enough information to go ahead. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair summary? I would say so, yeah. Good one. Okay. All right. I want to ask you about this thing about learning to let go of control. One of the things I hear from lots of times from leaders, particularly ones who don't want to make mistakes or don't want to have any errors in their watch, is that they have a hard time kind of letting go and letting younger talent step in, make some decisions, make some mistakes. Oh, my goodness. Hopefully not big ones. How did you learn to let go of control? Okay. This also is one that I learned early on from one of the more senior guys in the company. I used to report directly to this chap, and then later on, um, he was just a senior guy in the department. And I was asked, I was given the responsibility to run a small department, my first management role. And I talked to him off, just, just in passing at a luncheon or something, and I said, he said, oh, congratulations, you're taking this role. That's great. And I said, yeah, but I'm actually quite scared because, like, I can control what I do, and I can make sure that I do things as, as correctly as possible. But when I have these two other guys who are doing deals, making offers, and we, we had to send out offers to international companies with very precise, um, detailed pricing, and to send the right offer to the right company was imperative to the deal. And these mistakes could easily be made. And I said this to him, and I said, so I'm worried because I can control myself, but what if they make a mistake and then that'll be my fault? And he said, oh, well, mistakes, mistakes are made. People make mistakes. The thing is, relationships are important. 
you have to form relationships with all the trading partners. And if those relationships that you and your department form are good and solid, if a mistake is made, it can be fixed. Don't worry about that. And I, that was a real important thing for him to say to me because it allowed me to let go of control over, I don't know, perhaps micromanaging those people on my team, which I am not particularly good at anyway. <laughs> I would use that one. I like that. <laughs> this, this notion that the relationships are what, the quality of the relationships, the depth of the relationships, the trust in the relationship are what allow you to recover from a mistake or to fix a mistake or apologize for the mistake as the case may be. I like that, Zoe. Okay. So let's talk then about this whole thing about making mistakes and resilience and a hot topic for a lot of people at the moment. I've seen it crop up all over everywhere. And by resilience, I really mean that sort of ability to bounce back from a setback or from a misstep or a mistake or a missed opportunity or anything related to that, whether you did it or it was just, just happened on your watch. So I'm interested in, um, and I'm going to use the language setback because it encompasses all of those. Um, I'm right. interested in a setback you've had. Tell me about it. And most importantly, how did you recover? Okay. Um, you know, setbacks come in different sizes and shapes, I would say. Um, <clears throat> I had one such a setback, more mistake when I was running that team, and I sent out the wrong offer to the wrong company. And when you know that was an email that didn't send. <laughs> so I wouldn't, I think that was luck. But, you know, I was going to have to get ready for that mistake, but ultimately I didn't have to. As far as setbacks go, um, I was, I'm thinking about when I went for a role um, at, at Allianz when I was in the insurance company. Um, and um, I, I really wanted this global role. Uh, I was kind of finished with, you know, I'd, I'd done a new project-based role for a couple of years, and I was ready to move on. And this global role, I mean, it had my name on it to me, in my mm-hmm. in my mind. And it went to a guy in the states um, who was closer to the, the the center of power for this particular role. Okay, um, and I did initially take it badly that it was all about me. Um, I wasn't good enough for it or whatever our internal brain's voices mm-hmm. test us with. But what I did was I said, okay, well, I'm not gone. I just didn't get that one. So what do I do? What do I want to do? And I reassessed what I actually, where my skill set lay, what I thought I'd be good at. And then um, I had made good relationships in um, some of the management of my company. And um, I came across somebody I'm very senior, and I mentioned this to him, and I said, I'm a bit bereft. I don't know what to, where, what, what do I do next with this? And, and um, he actually said, well, wait a minute. No, no, no. This is what we should do. And I took another career path based on management relationships, or, you know, managing relationships of the company into the brokers. And it was a real ideal role. So that was a setback, but you, you mentally have to take it, and then you kind of shake yourself off. And um, redirect. Okay, so in retrospect, it's easy to say you have to take it and shake yourself off and redirect. You know, reassess your skill set, reach out to somebody. Okay, great. 
How long did it take you to kind of get over being upset about not getting this role? I mean, are we talking days, weeks, months? Do you know what? I was really lucky because I can picture the day I got the news. Um, And I was going off for a conference um, about a, um, believe it or not, uh, the Women in Insurance Network in London. Um, It was a conference. It was many years ago. Um, I was speaking um, about aviation insurance. And I had never been with this group before, so it was a real new thing. And um, I, I shared with these people, complete strangers, and I made some great long-lasting contacts that I recently, I mean, I saw some recently. And on this particular uncertain time, I've been in touch with these women. And um, so I didn't take as long as I probably could have had I not done that thing right after. Um, so it, I think I, I perked up relatively quickly. And just okay. got on with it. I didn't have a. I I had a job to do. It wasn't as if I had no role. Right. I just had to um, find my new place. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't think I've ever talked to a senior person in my entire career who hasn't had one of those where they went for a job that they thought was just theirs and they didn't get it, and that you know kind oh. of disillusioned. And it's easy to stay in that disillusioned space. So when you say you shared with this group, did you actually tell them that you'd just gone for a job and didn't get? Or was it that you were there sharing about your experiences in general and kind of getting the accolades for being on stage? A bit of both. Um, ah. I met a woman who I'm still friends with today. We hit it off like long-lost friends. It was really uncanny. Um, and uh, she's in... Um, PR, actually, in the city of London. And, um, yeah, I found myself telling her exactly what was going on. I remember my brain thought, why are you telling me this type of personal, you know, kind of setback to somebody? But I just, I felt in alignment with her. And um, it was very refreshing. Because they didn't know the inside machinations of, of the company I worked for, so it didn't. It wasn't relevant. It was more the concepts that we talked about, and then then yes, um, being well received during my speaking role gave me a boost as well. Right. Right, right. Mm. So it's going back to that thing of getting reinforcement for what you know you already do and do well and doing that and taking an action on it. But I have to tell you the secret of my coaching career, half the time, not 100% of the time, but half the time, just having somebody being able to talk about what has happened that they're frustrated about, you just Mm. see it. They get a release from that and often get a bit of perspective from it that helps them figure out what to do and to go back. All right. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, it's right back to where you said at the beginning that one of your strengths is not being afraid to ask for about things you don't know or to ask for opinions. Mm. And that comes right back because now you're willing to say to another senior person in the organization, what do I do? You know, how do I think about this? What do I do next? And insight comes from that. But you have to be willing to ask the question. You have to both be yeah. willing to say, geez, I didn't like this. And now what? Or what do I do with that? Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to move on to a different kind of setback because you were leading a team and working in the aviation industry in the risk assessment area, I might add, at 9-11. Any yeah. insights from going through that period of time that you think is useful to share? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
most of us and most people listening will recall that time and in, in very personal detail. So <clears throat> there was the backdrop of that. We had a, an unprecedented situation where the airlines of the world were going to be grounded if we did not reevaluate their whole insurance placements in 30 days. Um, so there was a time pressure, um, and it was all hands on deck. Weekends, as long as you like at night, everything. Um, and the one thing, well, many things, but one of the things that occurs to me about those days is that when you work in a company, you are all on the same team, but there's also the, the usual interpersonal struggles, maybe power struggles, political issues, what have you. All that had to get dropped. It was all absolutely forgotten. And I can remember being in a room with a whole bunch of people trying to get cover for this one airline. And it, those days, mobile phones did exist, but they weren't as well used. And using them out of hours at that stage was still a little frowned upon. So somebody said, do you have, uh, you know, one of the underwriters, do you have Sue's, this woman, this underwriter, this senior underwriter, who needed, we needed her approval. Does anyone have her mobile? And one guy had her mobile, her cell phone. We called her and she was in the supermarket. And that was kind of a big deal to do a business trade with a woman in a supermarket. But we were all there rooting for each other and we got the deal done. And But it wasn't about getting a deal done in a kind of winning fashion, which we were used to. It was like winning. That was why you did the deals. These deals were to keep the world flying, to keep to get the world back on its feet. That's how I looked at it. And that was the, that's what, that's what we were there for. So. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that something we talk about regularly, like 9-11, that cell phones were not that common. It really is just hard to stretch back your imagination and remember that. And I'm, no, I'm going to make no further comment on that one at all. What I find interesting about the story is, before I completely date myself, what I find interesting about the story is that the sense of any of the internal power struggles or interpersonal dynamics or political things or you know somebody you don't like, I mean, those things exist all over everywhere we try to get rid of them but they exist but that it all dropped away and that you behaved in an incredibly collaborative environment do you think that is always the case or was there anything special that happened that brought that collaboration together other than crisis i think i think ultimately because i just popped to mind right there was another scenario where the same cast of characters had to pull together um for a different thing less less globally catastrophic, but, um, and, and it was almost the issue was that our team was on the line. So one of the dynamics was that suddenly, I don't know, people listening, you know, your high school football team, soccer team, um, that, that kind of like team spirit that we wanted to do that for each other because we were all on the same team and we wanted us all to come out that, that, that feeling is the only one I can compare it to. It's, it's a playing from a high school, like track team, soccer team. That feeling of camaraderie and we're in this together definitely came through. And it came through a few other times where everyone had to drop their underlying rankers to get something done. And then, so you get through this. Does that sense of camaraderie stick around or is it just a thing that's in that moment and then it dissipates? I It doesn't stay around with this same intensity. 
I do think that the bond built from having all been together during those times are form a bit of a bedrock between the people. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So we have one last question for you before we take a break, which is uh, sometimes these create their own crises, but it's the quote unquote difficult personalities. Um, I get asked about this all the time and I say every time difficult for one person is not necessarily difficult for another person. So it's quote unquote difficult personalities, but you've worked in particular with some characters that we might describe as more volatile and I'm not going to name any particular industry or any particular person, but I'm going to say they exist everywhere. It's part of the human condition. What's been successful in working with you on these more volatile characters? I have there's two I'd like to mention. One was when I was running a small team, one of the teams that I mentioned previously, um, and there was a particular very senior executive who was uh, prone to shouting across the office in a very huff and gruff kind of way, which a lot of people were very intimidated by. Um, and I seen this before. And this chap shouted at me, have you got the deal yet? What's going on? So, and like across the open plan. Mm-hmm. And he kept doing this. And probably the third time he did it, I shouted back at him, you know, Joe, we'll call Joe, if you would just go away and leave me alone, I'll get that deal done for you. Now, <laughs> see, you later, see you later. And I think everybody around was quite shocked that I would um, be so bold. Interestingly, that that guy became very much, um, well, a great supporter and a great colleague. Not that he wasn't before, but it really solidified it. There's probably one other which comes to mind, which I found very difficult. Um, that was in my next company. Um, I would precurse this with something you just said, Wanda. Um, how I react to certain things is not how you would react to certain things is not how somebody else would. And also, what we think about a situation is not necessarily what another person will think about a situation. And that is fascinating, and maybe we can come back to that one when we move on. But this one guy, um, I walked in late to a training, an executive training program, and he was the sponsor of it, and he really had a go at me, quite publicly. And I had come from a different company, so being late was very normal. And in this company, it wasn't. But I didn't know that. And so he publicly shamed me, and I was mortified. He wasn't my boss or anything, really. Nothing related to me. He was just very senior in the company in that particular location, that city, London. Um, And I I thought, how am I going to get ahead now that this guy really has it out for me? I talked to one of my friends um, that I'd made, and he was running another department, and she said you got to ask him for his help. I said, what do you mean ask for help? About what? I've got nothing to do with him. I said, ask him, make it up. I said, that sounds so manipulative. What do you mean make it up? She said, find something that is valid that you could use as help with about the company and then ask him for help. And he will want to help you and you'll see he changes his way towards you. So I tried this and she was right. It was, I wouldn't have thought to do this. Um, we never worked directly together. I didn't really need his buy-in for anything I did. But what I didn't need was him to be a detractor. And I cleared the path for myself by doing what she recommended. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that's called in a 
coaching session, Wanda. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's what it called either, other than practical. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. I do think the cornerstone, and the thing I say about difficult personalities, and I personally believe, like heart and soul, about people that someone finds difficult, is that we make up our own story in our head about what that person is thinking and what they're saying for us and what they're like and why they're wrong and a bunch of stuff. But that's all in our head. And if you can drop all of that judgment about them and see another quality in them, then you have an angle in which to be able to work with them. And all we need is a way to work with them. I didn't say we have to become best friends. But that's Uh what you did. I mean, someone gave you advice that he likes to be helpful. You probably never knew that about him. But if you know allow that, that as a possibility, you have another mm-hmm. way of interacting with them. And it's not that we have to say, oh, I didn't like that you yelled at me. That was unfair. We don't even have to ever mention it. We just have to right. find a way to work together. Right. It's, um, I also find, I'm not sure I want to recommend that you always shout at people that shouts back at you. <laughs> but I will say that people that playful, have by the way. <laughs> very strong personalities, very strong opinions, and are very vocal in expressing them. Usually for good reason, respect someone who comes back to them with a strong opinion and are willing to express it. And it's not weakness so much as it is just a respect. I have a strong opinion. Where are you? Like, if you don't have opinion, then I'm right. Let's go. If you do have an opinion, okay, bring it on. And so sometimes just that willingness to be strong, stand by it, is part of what gets you through. Okay. I would agree with that. We could talk about this one for forever. So we're going to take a break at this point. And when we come back, I want to talk about different cultures. And I want to talk about Zoe's experience and perspective on a variety of different cultures. My guest today is Zoe Layden, and she is Managing Director of Clevo Consulting. And we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Welcome back. With me today is Zoe Layden. Zoe's a risk management expert, and she's currently managing director at Clavo Consulting. And I would say that Zoe's specialty has been in the insurance, reinsurance industry, but particularly in the risk assessment of the aerospace industry. All right, so Zoe, we've talked about your experiences learning to lead and dealing with setbacks and mistakes and difficult personalities and crisis and strengths and, you know, all those things around leadership. I want to now talk about cultures. So I know that you've had a personal fascination with cultures, but if you had to make a guesstimate of how many different cultures you've worked with, what would you say? Um, I would probably put it at a, oh, I don't know, 50. Okay. Okay. That's a lot. Uh, yeah, a approximately. Lot. <laughs> I'm not surprised knowing a bit about what you've done. But in particular, you've lived in in Britain, in Germany, in France, and you're a U.S. citizen by birth, I should also add to this one, and lived in the U.S. So in working with those four cultures in uh, particular, I'm interested to know what you've learned about those cultures and any advice you have for one working with the other one. Start anywhere well, you want to start. Um, okay. So, American, French, British, German? Yeah, add one that you think is relevant, but those are the four that strike me. Okay. Um, I've traveled quite a bit, well, relatively recently, a bit around Eastern Europe, and that is another... Um, yeah. There's some cultural influences there that I found really striking. But I'd say the first thing to, to think about, so I come from the United States, and therefore my perspectives are based on that cultural upbringing. Mm-hmm. So much like I said about how the way I see something or think about something in business may not be the same way another brain will perceive it. Um. Being from the United States and having grown up there, my cultural references are the baseline is that. Um, what I have seen for in business um, working with, um, say, Americans who travel to France, I've heard more than once oh, that the, they don't feel well received by the French. And um, to put it gently, and I have commented, um, because I did live abroad in France, and I've done a lot of French business over the many years, and I said, the thing is, you know, you're expecting them to be like you, and to smile broadly, and to be kind of exuberant about about your, you know, the introductions or what have you, very, very um, superficial level at this conversation. And they're not like that. And because you don't see the expressions that you expect on their face, for example, you assume they don't like you. But they don't not like you. They're just acting like them. And that (laughs) misinterpretation, even of facial expressions and reception, can start to grow difficulties. You see? Yep. Because it's an interpretation. You're right. Yeah. And and so you have to kind of it's it, realizing it is is one thing. Um 
when I worked in, um, I worked for a German company. We were doing a project in our French branch. And this is a case in point of where I saw the different cultures in action. Um, a German um, colleague, I was leading the project, and a German colleague had accompanied me. I knew the French team very well from my previous 15 years in Broking. So when I went to see them, I had we were in charge of them, technically, for this project, and they had to do what we needed done. And my German, when I set the scene for the project with the French team, I said, okay, and we'll need you to help us with this, and we'd ask you if you could give us this information, and there was a lot of requesting and lightheartedness. And the French team left, and my German colleague said, why did you do that that way? I said, what? Like what? And he said, we are here to do a job, a project, and we have to tell them what is required. We're not asking. And I said, but that's not how I think we're going to get the best cooperation. We're going to get better cooperation by making them part of our project because ultimately it's their information and they can choose to share with us what little or what a lot they feel. And I'd rather they share a lot because we won't know any better. And he went, oh, all right, we'll do it the Zoe way. And then <laughs> the rest of my working with this German guy, he'd be like, okay, it's the Zoe way, which I thought was funny. <laughs> Which meant asking people to get the best out of them and not telling. Um, I think that does work. Um, well, that's worked for me. But again, that works for me as an American mm-hmm. living in England, mm-hmm. going to into, into different cultures. Yeah. It might not work if you were from a different culture going to across to another. You see what I mean? It's very it's yeah, almost very right. bespoke. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of a team I worked with, in which they were Germans and French on the team. In fact, I've seen this on a number of occasions. And there was great dissatisfaction. The Germans didn't like the French, and the French didn't like the Germans. We could substitute any number of nationalities in there, but this yeah. particular case, Germans and French. And I think it came down to exactly what you highlighted. Germans are much more or at least the Germans on those two teams, were much more willing to say, here's what we need, this is it, just to do it. Right. And the French would then kind of dig their heels and say, that's not how we do it. That's not, Mm -hmm. you don't understand the circumstances. We have to talk through this. It would be a very different. And both of them were angry with each other. Mm -hmm. And not that either was wrong, but they just like didn't speak the right Language. It's not the words so much as it is the approach and the style. Okay. Exactly. And the right language makes me think of another cross cultural mm-hmm. conundrum, which is mm-hmm. the British and the Americans. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. They do speak the same language, though the British would question that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It is English. <laughs> um, so, because it is the same mother tongue, despite the different accent on it, um, there's an assumption that people do understand each other, but it is yeah. a very different culture, nonetheless. Yes, yeah. And I think the, what, what fouls people up in that cultural interchange is the expectation that they actually are thinking the same. At least when you're talking to different cultures, you have a slight... 
heads up that it's not quite the same because you're speaking, you're coming from different mother tongues. But when the mother tongue's the same, it can be even more insidiously deceptive. Okay. And I found, I had to do a project where I had to implement a, um, a management tool across the four cultures, French, German, English, and American. And that was probably one of the biggest challenges, was to get buy-in from the different cultures. There's also a management tool that they didn't want to have to use, mm-hmm. but they had to, and I had to design it, create it with the actuarial team. And so I had not just cross-cultural barriers, I had professional barriers to usage. Mm-hmm. And in the company I work for, we had what was called a matrix. And that is not a movie, which right, we all know. Right. It's a cross-cultural implementation of teams whereby you have authority over maybe a product line, but you don't have direct delegation authority over the people and their full-time employment. So it's called Influencing Without Authority. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's, you might have heard that before. Uh, yeah, I think just a few times. Yeah. How did you, how did you, what was the secret to get it done? And I'm presuming part of the story is it's one way with the French, another way with the Germans, a third way with the Brits, and a fourth way with the Americans. But how did you succeed in influencing them to do something they didn't want to do? Well, I used, used sounds terrible thing. I collaborated very closely with the actuarial team. And the actuarial people were seen as like, um, as, as neutral, if you will. Okay. Right? So therefore, it wasn't just me saying this is the way we go. I would, um, I would use their professional acumen and their abilities to, to know the numbers and know the facts. It was very scientific. Um, I also had to think of ways to show the teams why this tool was going to be most effective, right? Okay. Um, the tool, we called it a tool. It was, it was in order to, to, um, actuarially price risk. Mm-hmm. And in that stage of the game, a lot of risk was done more, I don't know what's the word for it, um, based on market knowledge, understanding, and and trending. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to do something more scientific. And I had Mm -hmm. to kind of demonstrate to the teams that there was the scientific number and there was the market number, and they wouldn't necessarily be right or wrong. They were different. And then they had to make a decision where they actually use these numbers. So that was one Mm -hmm. side. To give them buy-in to show them mm-hmm. that they actually knew what they were talking about. This wasn't going to diminish their, their expertise and professional knowledge, which was a fear. So I had to understand what their fear of using it was. Okay. And then, so that was probably, and I only thought of that as I told you the story. So I had, okay. to, I had to help them get over their professional fear of this interfering with their position. Uh-huh. And then the second thing was I needed their input. So by asking their input, I really needed their professional input on how this thing was going to work and look and, and operate. By, and they liked to give me that. And by giving me their input, it also became theirs. Mm-hmm. So it 
wasn't me implementing something at them. Mm-hmm. It was a team effort, and they had a part to play, and they had a responsibility to make it the best it could be. And that okay. worked very well. Okay. So, you know, the goal of building this tool and having the tool function and that the tool get used is not, it was kind of non-negotiable. It was going to happen. Right. But is it right that what you did was give them some input on how, like how it looked, how it operate, what the particular bells and whistles were, what the report generated out was? Is that what I'm understanding? So you gave them input on the how, but not the outcome. Exactly. The outcome right. had been decided by the board, if you will, the senior management. This this okay. thing had to be created, and in what like in what likeness it got to be created, that's where they got to play a part. Okay, great. Right. I think we always get um, that mixed up sometimes when we're trying to implement change or influence without authority. Is that we don't give people any control over their destiny, but we can't give them complete control over their destiny because sometimes you just have to do this thing, like implement this tool. Period. That's been decided. We have to do it. Now we talk about where we can give you control. All right. Were there differences in persuading the French versus the Germans or the Americans or the Brits? I found the Americans the most difficult. <laughs> Which and why was that? Somewhat <laughs> ironic. What? Sorry, and I so why, why was that? What was it that was difficult about the Americans or easy about the Brits, Germans, and French? Let's start with the easy bit. Um, I was sitting in England, so I saw those people all the time. Okay. I sat in the London office, so... Um, uh, so they, there is something to be said about doing face-to-face things. I know we're all using Zoom and and all in Teams and all these new medium to to communicate visually with each other across the, the world at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the face-to-face aspect of physically picking up my stuff and going over to someone else's desk and writing the same piece of paper together, it. it there's huge value there. I really believe that. So there was that. So they felt quite in control because they were actually in the office where it was being built. Mm-hmm. Um, the German team, the, that was the technical uh, center of the of the whole company, the, the management mm-hmm. center. Though it was a global, very global company. Um, so I think they felt, they knew how that worked and they understood that if this was what we had to do, we had to do it. So they weren't gonna. It wasn't in there. It wasn't really in their cultural uh, expectation to to just say no, right? Because that's the way right. you did it. Yeah. Um, the French are very thoughtful, and this was a very thoughtful project. And I think they appreciated the depth of um, analytics. Okay. Um, in the States, there's a tendency to think, um, how do I put it, that, that that way is the best way. Mm-hmm. And what happens in that, in, in that um, I don't know how to express it, there was a, there was a reticence to, to change the thing, how they did them. The, the mm-hmm. most, I would say, it was the most reticent to change. Um, and so getting their professional and technical input was 
think that there's a tendency, I'll speak about my fellow countrymen here, that there is a tendency in the U.S. to believe that whatever was invented in the U.S. is the best in the world, never mind the fact that we're hearing that on the media on a regular basis, but that there is a tendency to believe that. Like if you talk to healthcare professionals, for example, there's an assumption that the best medicine is being done in the U.S., or the best science is being done in the U.S., or the best whatever is being done in the U.S., um, and then that leads, I think, sometimes to a rejection of anything that is developed or thought or input from someplace else other than just a small add-in. Now, I said that. Have you seen the same more generally? Uh, yes, I would. I would tend to agree with with how you put that. Um, and it is. You know, and I'm seeking in my brain, like, where did, where did that, where does that fit with my cultural background? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot, there's a lot of influences that make us as Americans think that way. We're, compared to the rest of, most of the countries of the world, we're one of the newest. Mm-hmm. It's, yes, whatever, I mean, I remember the two, gosh, the bicentennial. <laughs> now I'm dating myself. Yeah. I was there. You know, that's only 200 years. And when right. you think that, you know, I'm sitting in, in London where 200 years is really a blip. So in order to get, and this is my my investigations of my own culture that I've done, you know, in order to get the, the United States pulling together in that team way that we all know and that we all were, were brought up with. You know, we said Pledge of Allegiance to the flag every morning I did in school. Um, and there was a great patriotism. And I think that is really well placed. Um, but it does lend itself to what you described. Right. It makes a ton of sense to me that there is that sense of we're going to pull together and we're going to make it happen and we're going to stand on our own and we're going to be unique and strong. And it's a quality I love about this country as well, I might also say. Yeah. Um, we got just a couple of minutes. I'm going to shift away from the multicultural aspect and ask you for an inspirational thing. So I just want to know one thing that has inspired you in your career. One thing that has inspired me. Only one. I know there's many, but only one. Um, a phrase that I came across once. Um, and I guess it's a career, but it's also a, it's a, a mantra maybe that, um, what happens to you is 10%, and what you do with it is 90%. And I think that's how my career has worked. There's been a lot of circumstances, a lot of sliding doors moments where I chose this way, not that way, and then I ended up over there. But I really find it fascinating that if you, if you want to put a ratio on how things turn out for you, 10% is what goes on around us all the time. And then that, the whole, the way it's crafted is the 90% of what we do with it. So I don't think you can give a better formula for resilience or for dealing with a crisis. We can spend more than 10% of our time fuming about it, fussing about it, being upset about it, emotional, whatever else, talking to friends. Or you can spend 10% acknowledging what has happened. And then the 90% of your energy is saying, okay, so what next? And I think if we look at the studies on resilience, that's the formula. That's what it is fundamentally. Perfect. 
I think, wow, what an incredible place to end on this particular segment. I think, Zoe, as I look across all of this, what's fascinating to me is sort of where you start started and then one thing you said at the very end. And this notion that as you grew in your leadership, that what you knew is you were comfortable with what you knew and therefore comfortable asking about things that you didn't know. And that willingness to ask for help, to ask perspective, to ask other people's alternative, to ask for advice, even in trying times, kind of dictates the 90% of what you do with the 10% that's happened. So it feels like that comes full circle. And I like that idea. I think that's a really clever idea. The second thing that strikes me in this conversation is really the whole multicultural um, and the belief that we have to look more and more and more and more daily, regularly, and my assumptions about what I think I'm expecting from other people and where those assumptions are coming from, from my culture, from my family of heritage, from my experiences of what's happened, and understand that that is just my perspective. It may not be what the other side is experiencing or wanting or thinking or actually really even feeling. And the more mindful we can get of that, I think it's the secret for the cross-cultural, but I also think it's secret for working with almost any range of personalities. So, Zoe, thank you. That was great fun. Yeah, it was very good fun, Wanda. Thank you. All right. It's a pleasure. My guest today, again, is Zoe Layden. She's currently Managing Director of Clavo Consulting. She works in reinsurance and managing risk, I should say, much more broadly, and a specialist in aerospace engineer. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.